Two areas that are going to differentiate competitive sprinters and Olympic sport athletes is one, their ability to use front side mechanics from acceleration to top end, and then also foot strike at top end. Okay, is your Olympic sport athletes will strike more on the toe and not midfoot, and they have in that that very early contact, the first couple hundredths of a second uh, is the difference. Is those competitive sprinters put out a ton of force. And those first three hundredths of a second are Olympic sport athletes. That's the difference. The second half contact is very similar. That was Rick Franzblau, Director of Strength and Conditioning for Olympic Sports at Clemson University, speaking on the difference between team sport athletes, soccer, baseball, and track and field sprinters in biomechanics and force application. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 94 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today on the show, we have Rick Franzblau. He is the Director of Strength and Conditioning for Olympic Sports at Clemson University. Rick is one of the most holistic and knowledgeable strength coaches in the game. Uh, his experience in terms of not only uh, technology, using things like force plates, 1080 sprint, Nord board, a variety of assessment protocols, um, and also ranging to his uh, using PRI, or postural restoration, RPR, functional range conditioning, and the immediate effects, neuro and structural methods such as that. Uh, Rick has just a huge base of techniques and methods on which to draw from and paint a total picture of an athlete in terms of where they're coming from when they enter his program and then quantifying the means and methods in the program as they go along, making sure that they are making an impact in an what they are supposed to. And and really that's what it's all about. And getting an athlete as strong as possible is one thing, but getting an athlete as strong as possible in the exact uh, specifications, in the exact uh, route that they need to is definitely another, and that's what makes the difference. And so uh, in the podcast today, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of those wide-sweeping methods. Uh, Rick is a guy who's had great success in his time at Clemson. For those of you guys who are track and field coaches out there, speed power coaches, uh, Rick has had a lot of experience with track and field, in his er er particularly in his earlier years at Clemson. Uh, he's with baseball and soccer now, but in his time with track, he worked with 10 ACC champion track and field squads. Um, work with high-level athletes such as Bri uh, Brianna Rollins, Travis Paget, amongst others. And so um, someone who's well-versed in the connection between the weight room, speed, and power. And so today, <clears throat> so today on the show, we're going to go into Rick's uh, athlete assessment protocols, uh, which pieces of technology and quantification is he using to create that picture for his athletes. We're going to go specifically in that assessment into the using the force plate to determine the differences between strength jumpers and elastic jumpers, which direction is the training going to take them. We're going to talk about his speed training progressions, areas that separate uh, Olympic sport athletes from track and field sprinters, which I think is always fascinating, just looking at motor learning, motor patterns. We're going to talk about how he's integrating the 1080 sprint into his uh, sprint training and assessment. We're going to talk about his approach to velocity-based training, 
fiber type preservation, when a hypertrophy athletes, when not to, and how VBT plays into that, as well as his uh, utilization of uh, functional range conditioning, PRI, and RPR systems. This is a great total episode for anyone who wants kind of like a full view of what goes in to a training package and assessing and training athletes. And there's a lot of toolkit stuff, uh, just cool, subtle ideas on how to make and tweak what you're doing right now in your sports performance program just a little bit better for the sake of increased athleticism, vertical jump, sprinting. So let's get to episode 94 with Rick Franzblau. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. I'm excited for it, Joel. Appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I don't, um, I don't get a ton. I mean, we both work in Olympic sports, and, and I think back throughout this podcast, and I haven't really had a ton of uh, Olympic sport coaches or even even uh, NCAA strength and conditioning coaches. Uh, I mean, I have, but it's always good to chat with somebody who's pretty much doing uh, similar things. And, and so I'm excited to get going on this today. Uh, first, I'd like to kick it off with what's your background in the field? So what, as an athlete, what did you do? What led you into strength and conditioning? And uh, how did you get to where you are now? For sure. I, I think pretty typical is... Uh... Grew up playing sports in high school, uh, football, baseball, basketball, eventually narrowed down just to football and, and kind of got involved in strength conditioning at the, at the uh, high school level, doing a lot of stuff wrong, as everybody does when they're first learning or, or not being instructed. Uh, saw how it helped my game. Uh, eventually got to college. I went to Colgate University, small school up in uh, central New York, uh, played football, by the time I got to college, I had already had uh, four surgeries, a couple knee, a couple shoulder. Um, by the time I finished my freshman year, I added two more to the mix. So I was up to six and uh, was medically DQ'd at that point, uh, mainly mainly for my shoulder. Um, always had a strong interest in strength and conditioning. By the time I finished up playing football, I developed a good relationship with our strength and conditioning coaches there. Uh, started work as a student assistant. And I did that for my next three years. So by the time my senior year rolled around, uh, I kind of had some teams of my own. Uh, I had a lot of responsibilities there, which was really cool. Um, but by the time I got to be a junior or senior, I kind of knew that this was this is what I wanted to do uh, long term. Uh, and then as I graduated college, um, it's kind of funny. I think as my senior year, I sent out a, a resume to every Division One school in the country to see who would who'd respond back and. Uh, Luckily, I got got something back from Clemson uh, down here. Uh, Coach Bass and Coach Greenlee uh, gave me an opportunity to volunteer intern down here. So it'd be close to 13 years ago uh, this summer. Uh, so kind of unusual path. Uh, volunteer intern eventually turned into a GA position. GA turned into assistant, assistant director, and, and then finally into a director position. Just starting my my fourth year in that role now, but. Uh, Definitely an unusual path. Um, just I had a great opportunity here. Just kind of focused on the process and learning as much as I could. Uh, my first three or four years were with football and the Olympic sports. Eventually, football moved into their own facility, and I uh, kind of settled into the Olympic sports role and was able to kind of climb the ladder uh, in that department. But uh, unusual path, but just kind of focused on the process and continually trying to develop myself and was lucky and fortunate to have some opportunities come across to me and you know unusual I didn't have to pack and move five or six times I was able to stay in one spot and um, learn a lot and there's you know being able to work for coach Bass and coach Greenlee uh, obviously a lot in the football and then Olympic sports working with Dennis Love uh, probably the best coach I've ever come across in terms of being on the floor and learning a lot from him uh, but that was an unusual path, but uh, got me to this spot and joined it a lot right now. And um, obviously, I'm biased by my experience, but I believe that being patient and and, and trusting in the process will kind of get you to where you want to be. But uh, obviously, I'm a little a little biased in that opinion. But uh, it's been a good good run, and still enjoying my time here, and I uh, have good staff around me. So, uh, but it's, it's been a good good experience thus far. Yeah, it's awesome, man. Um, you know, I, I like those those stories. Well, the unusual path is always a cool thing, just because oh, I myself, I think it was an unusual path into the field. And 
uh, I feel like the insights you learn along the way are always awesome to talk about. Uh, as well as, too, you're living the dream. Like, what was it? The You always hear all the time, the 1950s, no one had to really move around. Your job was right where it was. <laughs> and how many strength coaches nowadays can say that my job, I've basically been here for this long. I didn't have to bounce around the country and volunteer at all these different places or work my way, slip the ladder moving around. Um, so really cool for you. I, I think that's great. No, yeah, it's been it's been fun. I've been fortunate. Uh, I guess being in one spot for a long time, you kind of have to surround yourself with motivated people so you don't get complacent yourself. And one thing I always did when I was in those different roles, kind of climbing the ladder, was making sure I visited a lot of different schools, talked to a lot of different people, uh, visited a lot of different clinics. Uh, and so while I stayed in one spot, but I built a good network and reached out to a lot of different people just to make sure you know, I, I was doing my best to stay developing and, and continuing on with my education and things like that. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up too. Like, I mean, the field being as interdisciplinary as it is, that is so important is uh, getting around and learning from the different schools of thought. And I'm sure each, uh, each school, even each like Olympic sport department probably does things just a little bit differently than the other one. So being able to learn that has got to be a great opportunity as well as you've done. For sure, definitely. So let's let's get into it with what you're doing there at, at Clemson and the Olympic Sports Department. Uh, and I know this could be a very multifactorial question. I like a lot of these questions, like we've talked to lined up, like this could be a three-day seminar. Uh, but what is yeah. your athlete assessment protocol and how have you developed it over the years? For sure. That's that's probably the one thing that's, that's changed and altered the most over the years, particularly with some of the different technology pieces we brought into the program over the last couple of years but really we look at it it's really the three different layers for us number one is kind of our movement and biomechanics uh, number two our performance testing and number three is an energy system evaluation so our general movement series we do an fms um, not perfect by any means but provides us a baseline of some different movements um, I'm trained through PRI, so we do an adduction drop test. Um, well, a lot of times that'll give you a lot of different information and you can make inferences on other tests based off that. And also I feel that testing the frontal plane, that's where a lot of times where athletes have their most issues is in frontal plane asymmetries. So the adduction drop test is really important for us and just helps paint a picture with some of the other things that we're doing with the FMS and then also from the movement series, we'll uh, do a counter movement jump on our force plate for that. We're more looking at asymmetries. So, uh, eccentric braking, RFD, uh, peak landing forces, looking at different asymmetries. So that just kind of gives us a general idea of how the athletes moving and how far their sport adaptations have taken them away from what it is to be human. So obviously that's that's important for their success in their sport, but if they get too far beyond a certain bandwidth, an optimal bandwidth, then you can start to see a lot of issues uh, through compensation. Then through that movement series, we'll also have kind of some sport-specific tests. So our upright running sports, our change of direction sports, we'll do a Nordboard test. So obviously for our upright running sports, looking at hamstring, uh, risk of hamstring injury, and then for our change of direction sports, obviously hamstring strength, really important for looking at um, uh, possible uh, risk of ACL tear. So we'll look at force per body weight through the Nord board, and we'll also look at asymmetries. And having done it for long enough, we've been able to establish certain norms for each team in terms of force per body weight output. Uh, so we'll look a lot at that and also the asymmetries. And, and if we have to red flag an athlete, if they're beyond 15% or below a certain threshold for force output. Um, and we'll also do a groin squeeze with some of the sports, particularly soccer, uh, looking at groin, just a hand dynamometer. We'll look at groin, uh, groin strength, and then also we'll use that in season a lot. It's kind of an indicator of neuromuscular fatigue. Uh, with baseball, some of the pitchers, we've done total range of motion, uh, ER plus IR, comparing left and right sides. And then uh, with the golfers, our golf strength coach does a TPI test, so... That's kind of our general movement series. Um, our performance testing will really split up into two different things, our jumping and sprinting. So sprint tests, we'll do a 30-meter uh, sprint test with a 10-meter fly. 
So the last 10 meters, we'll just do that in a free lap, easy to set up, can run a bunch of athletes through. Uh, we're fortunate here. We have two 1080 units. Um, so this will be this summer will be our first time doing it with all of our uh, incoming freshmen for for our upright running sports and change direction sports. We'll do uh, a, a load velocity profile test. Um, so our male athletes, we'll take them through a spectrum. We'll go three kilos, eight, 13, uh, 18 and 23. And we'll kind of create a profile from them based off that. The females will kind of have an adjusted, uh, they'll go from three to 15 at three kilo increments. So again, just painting a, a better picture for us and who this athlete is. So we can look at their, whether they're more force dominant, more velocity dominant in terms of their sprinting. So those three tests give us a lot of, a lot of information to chew on in terms of them, uh, with their, with their sprinting, uh, jumps, we'll do a basic vertical jump. Uh, triple broad jump, that's one of my favorite tests. Uh, high correlation with 30 meter times. Just gives us an idea of horizontal force application, but also an elastic component uh, doing the three jump test. And then we will also, uh, based off our counter movement on the force plate, we'll look at different things from a performance perspective also. Uh, just trying to get an idea what type of jumper are they? Are they an elastic jumper? Are they a strength jumper? So we'll look at their stiffness index, uh, impulse ratio, their propulsive, their average uh, relative propulsive force output. Um, get an idea, you know, are they elastic, are they ballistic, do they, they use more uh, force, longer counter movement. Uh, just, again, helps us paint the picture for them. Well, uh, two ones we'll add this year. We'll be getting a, uh, a contact grid. Um, so we're gonna do a, a reactive strength index, just 10, five tests. So 10, 10, 10, um, repeated jumps. We'll take the best five RSIs and use that to create a reactive strength index. And then for a single leg, we're gonna do a, uh, five jump, single leg repeat, uh, again, looking at asymmetries and all that. So that kind of ties together our performance, uh, tests. And then lastly, uh, energy system. I know for me working with soccer, We'll kind of do a thorough anaerobic and anaerobic. Uh, we'll do the uh, Nike Spark Beat test, intermittent yo-yo, uh, as an aerobic capacity test. Um, one important one for us we'll do with almost all of our sports is some type of submaximal aerobic test with a heart rate recovery. So with soccer, we use a four-minute uh, test. We'll run 80 meters down and back six times at 20 seconds per 80 meters, so it's a slow tempo. We can test it in season so I can look at our reserves to see if they need more fitness work. Then we'll walk for a minute at the end and, and test their heart rate recovery. Really important for intermittent sports. Uh, and then like our volleyball tennis teams, they'll do a submaximal yo-yo test. So they'll only go up to 12 or 15. The submaximal won't tax them. It'll give us an idea of what their current conditioning levels are. And then also we'll get a heart rate recovery. Um, helpful too. Also the coaches, if they're, um, you know, kind of suggesting somebody's out of shape. Well, we can do this test without killing them and show that, you know, this may be more a fatigue versus a fitness type issue. And then lastly, we'll do, um, we'll do a mile test like the soccer for aerobic power to help with some of our maximum aerobic speed testing. And then uh, a new one we'll add this year, uh, an RSA test we're going to do in the 1080. So a repeat sprint ability test. It will go seven by 30 meters. 20 seconds rest with low resistance. So nice thing doing it on the 1080, we can not just look at uh, decrement of velocity over the reps, but also force and power. Um, so it's a lot of stuff, uh, but what's important for us, we wanna paint as good a picture of who this athlete is. And the better picture we paint, it can help us as they progress throughout that, their freshman year and through their career and audit our strength and conditioning program. Are we getting the targeted results that we want? Um, and adaptations in specific areas that that particular athlete needs. So obviously when they first come on the campus, it's a lot of testing, but we're able to kind of use it and do it within sessions throughout the year to make sure we're hitting it multiple times. But I mean, believe strongly in the better, better picture you paint of who they are initially, you know, you can get a better feel for the adaptations they're making throughout their career. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster.
Yeah, I think it's great how many areas you're pulling from in, in painting that total picture. You you almost think of it as like those diagrams with the different aspects of performance or the five biomotor abilities and how it all plays mm -hmm. together. And a lot of times we look at an assessment and we just think about one thing. And and so I think it's really cool how you are pulling some things together. You're probably seeing relationships between the areas themselves. Uh, I'd love to get into uh, the speed stuff. We'll, we'll get into in the next question. You're talking a little bit about what you're doing on the 1080 and the, the RSA yeah. and the 10 meter fly. Uh, something I'd just like to get into and expand on your assessment uh, just right here would be maybe a little bit more in the performance realm because I think that's I think that's where a lot of um, sports performance people will start. A lot of people would do like an FMS or or whatever. I love that you're trained in PRI. I know that's something that's really been infiltrating my thought process mm -hmm. in the last year. And you had mentioned that the adductor drop test and the frontal plane, uh, and and that's kind of the first place I've gotten to going is that adductor drop test. Uh, but could you uh, talk a little bit more? Oh, I, I, before I get too far, I do want to say I love what you said about um, how far they are away from being a normal human being. So how far yeah. into their their sport or has has their compensation patterns? Well, not not a compensate. It's kind of that line, right? Like, is it a compensation yet? Is it a normal part of their sport? Uh, so yeah. I'll have to remember to get back to that because I, I love how you put it that way. I've never heard that term like how far away from being human are you but are you into a compensation yet but could we start with just talk talk a little about starting with the adductor drops on the pri stuff expand on maybe mm -hmm. the frontal plane a little bit because i think you don't hear that come up a ton when we're doing assessments and, and then maybe we'll get into that line between athlete and compensation a little bit later for sure and, and it's the obviously the frontal plane extremely important but you you tie it in with some of the other things too so the fms you're doing a the straight leg raise, which is giving you an idea of kind of where they are uh, from a sagittal plane. Uh, and when you start to put that together with the adduction drop test, obviously if, if they're a positive on adduction drop test, they're not going to pass an adduction lift test. Um, and then we can also look at uh, the hurdle step in the FMS, their single leg jump series, and start to put together, you know, it, whether they're a left AIC or they're a PEC pattern, how this fits into their movement and their compensation pattern. So also with the force plate too, in terms of their eccentric braking, uh, the asymmetries in that. So not only in these passive tests, what are we seeing, but how, what's their compensation method to allow them to get by in their sport. So being able to do these different tests allows us to pull from a lot of different things and figure out, well, th this is how they're compensating. This is what they're doing. And let's, let's figure out what issue we need to address first and foremost, too. Because also, if they're a PEC, one of the first things I'm going to look at, too, is their hamstring test. Okay? Because they're usually going to have a deep, deep back, big anterior tilt. So, really, their hamstring tests or groin squeeze, those should also be, um, you know, well below our, our general threshold for being safe and effective in, in your sport. But, uh, yeah, a lot of it starts with the frontal plane. And, and when we just do uh, – because – as important as our assessment stuff is, every bit as important as watching practice and movements intently too. So when we're starting our freshman program and doing some isometric holds, whether it be a lunge hold or we're teaching them a single leg hip hinge, so we're looking at these patterns too. And if you know if they're in a bad left AIC pattern, usually you're going to see more valgus on the right side if they're doing a, a single leg hip hinging. Um, but it's, it's important for us because we can infer a lot of things without having to take everybody through six or seven different PRI tests. Um, and then from these other performance ones and the hamstring and the groin, we can start to paint that picture together and address really what's most important for them uh, with their particular sport. Yeah, I like the idea of being reductionist in testing. Uh, and I think Dan Papp had said something like, for him, like the screen was watching an athlete sprint or, or that'd be like the, the ultimate goal of getting sure. to the point where you can watch an athlete and be like, OK, I think you're you're this. And then and then maybe you get them on the table and you're like, OK, yeah, I, I, you're right with this one. Uh, and so I like the idea of being as reductionist as you can, like maybe start with that extra drop and not have to do all you know, five or <laughs> or seven of, of the, the follow ups or those types of things necessarily. Or I mean, if we if we ran athletes through the, the FMS and the PRI and the SFMA and, and it would just take forever. And then you'd have so much data. You're like, what am I even going to do with all this? Like, and uh, so I was going to say, you had mentioned the, I like the idea of relationships and 
what can we infer based on what we're seeing in different things? You mm-hmm. mentioned like the hurdle step and the the single leg jumping on one leg. Uh, mm-hmm. I, like, were you saying like basically if an athlete is has like a lot of drift and single leg jumping, that they're probably not going to be good at the hurdle step test either? Or that you're finding a relationship there? Yeah, for sure. This will be our first time doing the single leg jump test. I've tried it before with the old jump mats, but small surface area made it kind of difficult with the contact grid. Uh, we should be able to run this pretty efficiently, but yeah, with, you know, if in a left AIC, uh, you know, they can get to their right foot and their right side a lot better as you expect to see certain things in a repeat jump versus, uh, on the left side. So, um, you know, we haven't dived into that too much yet, but uh, I'm excited to, as, as we have the contract, contact grid to the mix this year, being able to look at those things a lot more closely for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For everyone listening to this, too, the, who's not familiar with the PRI uh, definitions, the uh, AIC is the anterior-interior chain, and athletes who demonstrate that pathology typically have a left uh, pelvis that's tipped anteriorly because of the position of the heart and their breathing, and then uh, the, the PC is a posterior extensor chain and those are like your bilateral anterior tilt type people like like rick had mentioned uh where they're their anterior tilt they have that lumbar lordosis a little bit and the associated uh symptoms that come with that and then uh rick i do like what you said the idea too of like and i think this is very common like typically without those that knowledge a strength coach would see in a symmetry and lifting and just say oh just shift your weight more or just shift your body more when really that yeah. the problem actually lies a little bit deeper than that for sure, and I, and I think uh, as much as kind of our staff are founded in a lot of PRI and that's more neurology-based approaches, um, neurology and, and, and hacking the CNS is difficult. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's great to, to look at it and do it all, but a big part of what we do is, is build resiliency and tissue uh, so we can handle uh, these different misfires and, and, and neurology being imperfect and those type of things. So. A lot of times we'll see things, uh, but we won't necessarily address them right away in a lot of detail. We'll try and build up some resiliency, uh, whether it be through conditioning and, and building up the aerobic system and specific tissues. Uh, because if just, just the neurological approach itself can be very difficult and tricky, and just PRI in itself, if you're working with a team setting, to get an athlete to passively and then actively uh, be able to, to attain neutrality and be reciprocal and alternating is, it's difficult. So a lot of times it's just being able to paint a basic picture and get an idea of if they're operating within a bandwidth, that's going to keep them safe in their sport and keep them healthy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely, if you're working with athletes, if you get a lot of one-on-one time with athletes, it's definitely something you can take the fullest advantage of in a group setting. You really do have to triage a little bit. And sure. uh, and just kind of say, okay, here's a group that might do all this. So I, I totally get, I totally get that. Uh, I wanted you to expand a little bit as well on you had mentioned a force and a elastic jumper and using the force plates. And I know, mm-hmm. like the my, I think the my jump app, you could get maybe similar things out of it. Uh, could you could you go into that? Like, how are you using the force plate to get that information? And what are some things that that are giveaways for one athlete being one type of jumper or not? Yeah, I think there's a couple key. Uh, metrics we'll look at one is stiffness index so we get an idea of at what depth are they producing their most force um, so obviously a more elastic jumper is not going to need as long or as deep of a counter movement uh, to generate their highest force capabilities um, then we'll also look at we can look at the breakdown of their actual counter movement what percentage is unweighting what percentage is breaking what percentage is propulsive and generally are really elastic type jumpers will have a, a, a good percentage of uh, unweighting, very short breaking, and then they'll get right to exploding up. Uh, and then we can also look at uh, RFD, rate of force development, eccentrically and those types of things. So, uh, but stiffness is usually a good, good uh, one to look quickly at and get an idea of just what's their counter movement depth and uh what's their relative force output from that depth so uh and joe i mean it's great we get the metrics but a lot of that you can do the naked eye too you know you watch somebody i mean you with your track background jumping background do a vertical jump and you can tell right away but uh i think what's important for us in getting the numbers 
is if we're trying to make a shift in one direction or, or another more is we have some tangible numbers to go off of and it helps us audit uh, what we're doing in the weight room uh, from a strength perspective. Sure. Well, so based off those, because this is always something that I'm interested in, are you? what is the point where you are trying to make a shift uh, in an athlete's jumping profile? And then also based off that info, so an elastic versus a force jumper, is that impact the way that you squat them at all? Would you be more likely to have a, a give them one type of lift or another ad, uh, preferentially based off a of profile? Yeah, uh, tricky question for sure. Um, I think in certain instances, generally you're not going to have somebody who's elastic and trying to make them more static. Uh, for almost any sport that you're, unless it's powerlifting maybe, um, you're going to want the elastic type athlete. That's kind of the gold standard. So it's more if we have a strength type jumper athlete, um, is can we safely try and move them in one direction? And is it necessary for their sport? You know, if they're a sprinter and they're not super elastic, then, you know, this the cost benefit of the shift could be worth it. If it's a, you know, soccer player, baseball player, you know, it's kind of up in the air, but it, it kind of goes back to also, I know you have some background too with the neurotyping is if you fight too hard against what they're wired for is they're going to have a hard time adapting to the stress that you're giving them. So I know like uh, out at Altus, I was out there this past fall. During the fall, they'll do a lot of stuff working on weakness. When it gets to the spring and more in-season time, you're going with what they're wired with, you know, stressors that you know they can handle. So if we are trying to make a shift, it's going to be more off-season, uh, and I'd say it'll be a small percentage of the program. But I'd say what's more important for us is, in most of our sports outside of maybe per se volleyball is we're looking at the sprint profiling. Okay. So that's great spend a lot of time looking at the jump profiling but if it's a baseball or soccer player i mean more of your sport time is going to be spent running and accelerating so uh kind of a similar perspective we'll take looking at the 1080 and kind of moving forward with that you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah I, I, and i'd like to get into that for the next question i i do think that's really great though by the way how you you had mentioned, um, I've never heard anyone put it quite that way, but it makes all the sense in the world. Like for sport, elastic is the gold standard. Like Franz mm-hmm. Bosch would say, taking the muscle slack out. But sure. uh, but then also, yeah, like what does it take to, if you have an athlete that's a 1A or a 2B, a 2B especially, and you're in the neurotyping system or someone who maybe doesn't have a strong nervous system, is a slower jumper, and if you hit them with all these plyometrics, they're going to blow up, you know, yeah, like absolutely. what is it going to, what is the cost of doing that? And, and how, how do we go about that? And cool with that, what you had mentioned with Altus too, I'd heard Stuart McMillan speak in the past on uh, training the weaknesses, the off season being the time to tinker with that stuff. And then the yeah. in season, you gotta, you gotta train them how they're meant to be trained. I, I think that's where it's at. For sure. All right, so hey, yeah, let's get into speed training progression. You had just hit on the, the how you're using the 1080 a little bit. So, uh, and you had mentioned it too. You had mentioned the 10 meter fly. You mentioned repeat sprint ability. Uh, yeah. What's so with athletes are coming in? Uh, mm-hmm. Is there anything like? And maybe I guess you might be touching on these again or summarizing a few of these things again. But what's what are athletes getting from a speed training? Uh, profile or, or package once they step on campus for sure and, and this will be our first year doing kind of the broad testing everybody on the 1080 outside of you know golf and some of those sports but uh still you know we got to teach them how to run we got to teach them how to accelerate we got to teach them how to run with upright posture uh with our, our more max velocity type running so you know, there are basic progressions we're going through that have absolutely nothing to do with technology or, or profiling. So really the big things we're looking for and myself having the big track and field background, I think it helps in working with the field sports is there are two areas that are going to differentiate competitive sprinters and Olympic sport athletes is one, their ability to use front side mechanics from acceleration to top end and then also foot strike at top end. Okay, is your Olympic sport athletes will strike more on the toe and not midfoot. And they have in that, that very early contact, the first couple hundredths of a second uh, is the difference. Is those competitive sprinters put out a ton of force in those first three hundredths of a second. Our Olympic sport athletes 
that's the difference. The second half contact is very similar between these, and this is a lot of stuff I've seen through some stuff that Ken Clark's uh, talked about. But so what we're really looking at is rhythm and coordination and getting to their front side. So um, progression will work, and we'll, we'll work this simultaneously. Our acceleration and more our top end progression is uh, acceleration. We'll do some ISO holds on the prowler. We'll load up the prowler to where it's uh, an, at an immovable weight where they can learn horizontal push. They can understand uh, body position, get into their front side. Then we'll progress that to a prowler march. We're adding some movement and seeing if they can maintain the mechanics. Uh, eventually, working into a prowler bound. where we have Now we have some limb, limb exchange. We're working some low heel recovery. Can they still maintain their posture? And then finally, that progression, we'll do a prowler shove. We'll start to incorporate more maximal projection. So can they project repeatedly and maintain these mechanics uh, moving forward? And then we'll also pair this with some low uh, incline hill sprints uh, on the hill. It's easier to teach them how to keep their hips forward and a lower heel recovery. And then eventually, we'll, we'll progress into some more uh, flat ground accelerations. But this is something we really started last year or two. At the same time, we're working on that. We'll also work top end work through some dribbling progressions. And then a big one for us is some wicket work. So uh, early on, we'll do a really long, slow, very slow, gradual buildup. So maybe like a 20-meter run-in uh, to some wickets. And really the biggest thing we're trying to teach, and obviously they're not competitive sprinters, so it has to be a few uh, important coaching cues, is pelvic tilt. If they can run over the wickets, get their foot down under their hips, good pelvic control, the hips and shoulders will stay stacked. They'll get to their front side like they need to. They won't have excessive backside mechanics. So we'll just slowly keep progressing that. And as they get better with the acceleration and the wickets, then we'll start to blend them. So we'll cut down the run up to the wickets to where it's more of a true acceleration. Then they'll run through the hurdles and then eventually uh, take the hurdles away. But you know, another another important part of that, too, is uh, early on we do a lot of tempo running, which teaches our kids how to relax, to understand mechanics, foot strike, um, and, and also pelvic position. So you do a lot of sub-maximal volume of holding that pelvic position. kind of helps them develop some strength in those postures, particularly soccer. Obviously, baseball, we're not doing nearly as much volume with the tempo running, but I think that's helped a lot in terms of them understanding uh, upright running mechanics yeah i know there's a lot of track coaches who like don't really like tempo work but i i especially for the novice and intermediate and even even if a track some advanced i i'm a fan of it and then like how for you sure. had said what you're trying to get for your team sport athletes who if they were track athletes in terms of skill of running would be in the you know, intermediate novice category i think there's a lot of benefit there uh and so yeah no, I, I think that stuff's good what type of prescriptions are you typically giving out for the tempo tempo sprints for your sports yeah for for the baseball guys it's usually 60 to 80 meters um really there's, there's no need to push it further with them uh our soccer guys uh especially if we're trying to do it a little bit more for some aerobic capacity type work uh, we'll stretch it out to 200 meters is a lot of our kind of sweet spot with them. Uh, we'll, we'll push up to 300. Some, uh, the younger guys, it's, it's ones, some twos. They just don't have the, uh, the strength yet to hold their posture and balance while they run to extend it much further. But, uh, then we'll also use a heart rate monitor on it with the soccer guys. So we'll recover to aerobic threshold and use it a lot for building aerobic capacity but uh generally soccer guys are starting at 100 we're building up to two or three baseball uh usually we start at six the, the furthest we'll go is is 80 meters or so but important also for some of these kids from a hamstring resilience standpoint too is they haven't done a lot of upright running but they'll need to in their sport is just building up with submaximal uh intensity some volume and resilience of those hamstrings yeah, that, that's a good point too. Yeah, if you're working with team sport athletes and you're getting them, you know, it's like, oh, today we're gonna do six 10 meter flies. That would, you probably get a lot of hamstrings uh, yeah. just coming out the gates doing something like that. Those athletes aren't used to that type of work for sure. Uh, okay, so you had mentioned a little bit with so with the 1080 uh, that re yeah. repeat sprint ability seven by thirty. Could you go into the nuts and bolts of that and how you're kind of getting some information out of it? Yeah, so that that'll be a new one uh, we've done. So it's particularly for soccer, um, 
we want to get an anaerobic capacity test. In the past, we'd uh, we just done a one-minute test in the Versa Climber. It was effective. It worked a little bit, but it's it's nice. We can do this now, obviously sprinting more specific to their sport. We can look at a couple different metrics, but also from a hamstring perspective. I know JB Lorenz put a little research out there is with some, I think, I believe, I don't know if they did with the 1080 or some resisted protocol. Um, they saw a huge decrement in force, uh, much greater than any other metric throughout a repeat sprint. And those are individuals that ended up having hamstring injuries. Hmm. So um, it's just important for us to profile, uh, particularly with soccer, uh, which energy system. If, if we need aerobic adaptations, are we getting those? And also what's ha- happening on the other end of the spectrum? And are we really targeting what we need to? So um, so it just helps us audit, again, our conditioning program. Is Are we getting the tar- targeted uh, specific adaptations we want? And if not, uh, we got to go back and, and look at some different things. So just another thing that helps us out and um, will give us a good sense of, you know, repeat sprintability, obviously real important for intermittent sports is uh, being able to look at different metrics gives us a really good picture on it. Yeah, could you? That's that's great. I you had said something with the JB Marin stuff and, and then the repeated sprint. Yeah. So you said drop in force. Uh, was that like drop in direction of force? Um, is Is there a specific on that? Um, I know we just looked at it a little bit, but it's mainly magnitude. Okay. Uh, it's just versus, uh, maybe velocity and power. Uh, this, the force decrement was much greater, uh, and at a much higher rate than anything else. And those ended up being individuals who, uh, who had some hamstring issues, uh, later on in the season. So, um, not our main reason for testing that, but just another thing to look at, um, over time. And also, you know, return to play something we can look at too. Somebody does have a hamstring issue and put them in the repeat spin. Uh, what do these different metrics look like over the course of above seven reps and with the short rest time, obviously there being a large aerobic component and contribution to it also. Hmm. Yeah, it was just interesting to me. I, I, I was just thinking about like, I wonder if an athlete was more strength oriented or elastic oriented if you're more strength and muscular oriented yeah. your force probably would drop off faster because you're you have to use more energy to do every sprint and and those athletes usually are a little more hamstring prone anyways than their elastic counterparts and I, i'll have to look into that that's kind of a cool thing you brought up there yeah all right so so next thing uh next question going into different tools in your uh training toolkit and ways you're addressing strength uh vbt or velocity based training in particular uh could you talk a little bit about how you're utilizing that selective hypertrophy uh and hitting the fast twitch fibers how is that working its way into your program yeah so i mean for a lot of our programs anytime we're squatting uh for baseball use it for bench press a little bit for uh track a lot with the olympic lifts um we'll use we have the gym where we use velocity based training but really for us a big part of it is just applying a velocity to a rating of perceived exertion. So we'll have scales for our different lifts. So it really depends on sport too. If I give you an example of baseball, an RP at 10 would be a maximal lift. So generally for our baseball guys, a maximal squat would be around 0.3 meters per second. So based off that, we'll set an RP scale that tells us, all right, if we want to squat, do triples at an RP 8, we know the ending velocity is going to be somewhere around 0.45 to 0.5 meters per second. So it's a way for us to attribute a velocity to our, our perceived exertion. And then, like I said before, it would be different based off sports. So for our sprinters, uh, an RPE 10 squat may be around 0.45 meters per second. So an RPE 8 squat for them may be more like uh, high, high 0.5s or 0.6 meters per second. So allows us to really fit it to the type of individuals that we're training. Um, and at the end of the day, it just comes down to auto-regulation, is we can regulate intensity based off fatigue, um, you know, practice the day before, how they slept, all these different factors are going to play into how they train that particular day. So allows us to do a lot of stuff, auto-regulation, and also, you know, particularly track, uh, training different types of strength and being in different zones uh, throughout the competitive season. And then, like you said before, something cool we've done the last couple of years, uh, particularly some of our older groups, uh, we've done it with track, baseball a good bit, is uh, selective hypertrophy. 
So we'll train to different fatigue percents based off what the particular athlete needs. So if they're a developed athlete, maybe they're at their ideal playing weight. This is, this is for baseball. Uh, and we want to really target type 2B fibers, we'll train them to a very low fatigue percent. So say we're doing a 70% squat and we want to do triples, is they'll do their three reps if they stay under 10% fatigue. So if their first rep's 0.6, if they stay above 0.54, then we'll bump them up. If they drop below, we'll drop down. So we'll make changes based off that. If they're an athlete that really needs muscle mass, then if we're doing 70% uh, squats, then we may fatigue 30% or more. So we're able to kind of select that to what they specifically need and had some really good results with it and done it with track an awful lot because those kids don't need any type of, uh, particularly sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, uh, you know, staying light as possible, as explosive as possible is the name of the game for them. So uh, we've done a lot of work with them on that with squats and, and different movements, but uh, been really successful with that in terms of guys. We don't want to add mass. We've been able to improve some jump, some jump tests, some sprint tests based off that. Um, but really, a really powerful tool. We've used a lot with that. We, we do it a couple different ways. We do straight sets or open sets. So we may do 70% and do as many reps as you can, uh, staying below 10% fatigue and adjust based off that. So we can adjust based off the the rep or the fatigue percentage. So Kind of a really kind of complex system we set up uh, based off that, but allows us to really, like goes back to our assessment target, what we specifically need with that particular athlete. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I like how you had mentioned you know, the track athlete versus the baseball player and what, what an average velocity might be, just because I do think, yeah, it matters. You have an elastic or a muscular and, so you said on the force plate or looking at a vertical jump, like you're probably going to get some athletes who, if explosiveness is their paradigm, they're they're probably going to have a different nuance in that profile than someone who might be a little more static. Oh, for sure. It's so true. And I, I kind of learned that through uh, trial and error at a young age. I remember at, at a sprinter, uh, Travis Paget. at one point he held the uh, collegiate uh, record and super elastic kid. And I had him squatting uh, real heavy one day and, I can't remember what he did, but he just absolutely killed the rep. Like, oh, shoot, we got another 20 pounds easy. And put 20 pounds on the bar, bam, gets stapled at the bottom. Is That's uh, one of the most important things. If you're lucky enough to work with some gifted athletes, there's an awful lot you can learn from them in terms of their movement and how they do different things. And kind of learned at, a, at an early age is these, these elastic types, they're a little different. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you, and, and you, you have to adjust your training accordingly. That's where a lot of the... Uh, even for our Olympic lifts, the, the thresholds that the track sprinters can, can hit are, are much different than what we do with some of the so with soccer and stuff like that. So we adjust all those scales uh, uh, based off the teams and groups and what they're capable of doing. Yeah, I like that's such a cool anecdote with uh, Paget. I do. I remember that name. I think it was back around when I was <laughs> probably when, about when I was in college or just gotten out. It was is. It's cool to hear that familiarity. I know, um, and yeah, Christian Thibodeau and that neurotyping system, talking about how that 1B, and it's always been the same with me. Like, I'd smoke a certain squat weight and be like, oh, I could put, you know, 20 more pounds on, no problem, and then just get dominated by it at the bottom. And be like, oh, what happened? But yeah, that's, I, I, and, and that's, but that's what you want if you have a lot, you know, I mean, more or less, not, not with absolutely everybody, but that's usually if you're a track athlete, like working in impulses and working in bursts is For sure. where it's at. Definitely. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. And you have to adjust that accordingly. If you don't, you're going to be overtaxing one group and one group isn't going to be pushing to the intensity that you want. So it's been, it's been real helpful for us to do those types of things. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Uh, so when you're doing the tagging the lifts, uh, this is something that I've just been personally interested in is mm -hmm. do you, uh, is it with the traditional lifts? Do you tend to use, uh, any partial range squats? Are there Olympic movements that you tend to prefer? Uh, is there, what are, what are the lifts or the variations of the lifts that you are most likely to use the velocity based metrics with? Uh, really with all, all our different squats. Um, so our full range squats, front squat, back squat, um, 
even uh, right now baseball, we're we're doing a, a one and a quarter squat phase. Uh, we'll, we'll still use the velocity just to help regulate our intensity. Uh, the track, we'll do some speed squatting. We'll shorten the range of motion a little bit uh, with some bands and stuff like that, and and obviously be able to hit some higher higher velocities. Um, but yeah, for all, all those different moves for all our Olympic lifts, uh, clean from the ground. Uh, we'll do a lot of stuff off blocks particular track in season um so back when i had track uh i did a lot of statistic work and analysis and we did some uh, uh correlation coefficients looking at different uh lifts and, and and jump numbers and the highest correlated uh lift we had was um a clean off blocks uh the power output from that had the highest correlation with vertical jump um height so uh just a uh, you know, not a huge sample size. It was probably 10 or 12 kids. And, uh, but being able to put the 10 or uh, now we have the gym wear on all those reps and get a get look at power outputs and, and velocities has allowed us to also, you know, get a better idea what, what the R squared values of some of these different lifts and, and the metric we're trying to attack too. Yeah. I, over the last couple of years in particular, I'd say I've, I've definitely made a shift in terms of um, it used to be kind of either you're cleaning from the ground or we're going to do a hang clean. And then with the introducing blocks more and more, I, I've definitely gravitated towards the point where I, I, our athletes really don't do cleans from the floor as a huge percentage of the program, maybe like 20 or 30%. But I've, I've gotten to the point where it is usually off blocks. It's really cool to hear that, that research and those ideals. And it's a, I don't know if it's just the elimination of kind of the, the complexities of that initial phase off the ground, moving the knees back, making sure everyone's in the right place. Uh, but I, I definitely do like that a little bit more. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And it's, it's something, you know, off season, we do a lot more pulling from the ground in season, a lot more work. off. And really our ultimate goal is how much weight and how fast can we get them moving off the blocks? So the full movement is just kind of a means to the end of, how productive can we be off the blocks and learning? I think the movement is obviously break it down in our progression, but being able to do the whole movement and then break it back down to selected parts with really our end goal, not being what's your power to clean max. Really? That's just, that helps us do more off the blocks. But the end goal is how powerful can we be doing stuff from above the knee or mid thigh? Yeah, totally. Um, do you, do you, would you prefer blocks then to like a hang with a, a counter movement? Or what, how does that percentage tend to break down? Yeah, I mean, I do. Because when you look at ultimately what you're getting out of the cleans, uh, I don't think you can look at it as really an elastic or where the counter movement is really all that important. So what I get out of a counter movement on a clean for a track athlete will do little for their elastic qualities or components that they're not getting sprinting and jumping. So I'd rather do it. Uh, from dead start, overcoming inertia, because ultimately what you're trying to do with the Olympic lifts is you're trying to affect what they're doing in the first couple steps of their drive phase or their approach if they're a jumper. So for us, it's more important coming off the blocks. Anything I'm getting stretch reflex on an Olympic lift, eh, I just cost benefits not there for me. Yeah, I, I, I like that you brought that up. I've, I've felt the same way. Uh, and I mean, it is like a hang clean where you're going down then up that I think that stretch reflex is or that time. It's I don't know. It's like 0 0.2, 0 0.3, like longer than a foot contact, even in the first step. But I what I've always and I'm in the same boat as you. I've I've definitely preferred blocks, even myself still training. It just feels better. It's one of those intuitive things. I'm like, OK, I know this feels better. But what yeah. I, and I I like the um like that subtle rebending that happens uh like right off the bar clear to the knees like to me that's the phase I look at the 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 stretch shortening and that phase is faster than one eight mm -hmm. um sure. and and you really can get it when you hit it off the blocks and you can like focus on it more too it's like pull reflex boom and yeah there's something about that I'm, I, it's that's the first time I've heard someone else really talk about that and go into it. Yeah, just uh, just over time, trial and error seemed to make sense for us. Yeah, no doubt. What uh, taking the Olympic list of the VBT, what do you uh, what do you tend to look for in terms of uh, velocity? What are you what are you aiming? Yeah. What are you telling your athletes the goal is? Yeah, so I, we'll use peak velocity uh, for the Olympic lifts, um, especially intermediate uh, weightlifter per se, strength or really sport athlete trying to weightlift. Uh, they're gonna have a more controlled first pull. 
So ultimately, we were trying to see how explosive are they through that second pull, and that's going to be more measure of the peak velocity. Uh, you know, if they're a little more controlled off the ground, that'll affect their average velocity. So that's something we we actually started doing right away. We're just like, yeah, you know, this this makes more sense for us. But we'll we usually just set thresholds, and almost all of our training we'll give them percent ranges, and it'll be based off what type of thresholds they're hitting. Um, so. You know, if we're getting deep, deep in season, some of the guys, you know, are hitting close 2.4, 2.5 meters per second on some lighter loads, 70%, 75% Olympic lift. The other important factor, too, you got to look at is height, too, limb length. So if you're taller, you know, we've had six, five high jumpers before. They can generate higher velocities on Olympic lifts. So our, our, you know, our charts are scaled not just to the type of athlete, but also their height, too. And then we've had sprinters that are five feet, five foot three is they're not going to be able to generate. They don't have the time to accelerate and create the same velocity. So it's important that you adjust based off these different factors. So, you know, if I have a five foot three uh, women's soccer player and I have a six foot five high jumper and I'm training 75 percent on cleans, power cleans off the ground, say, is you're going to get much different readings. And, and just being able to wear and cognizant of that is really important to apply the velocity principles correctly. Yeah, that's that's a really I another thing I hadn't thought about is that uh, height based difference. Uh, but yeah, I probably just like um, just like you were talking before with the sport based difference, baseball versus a track sprinter. Another important thing, it's like another, it's a subtlety, right? It's not something that's like huge. Yeah. It's, not, it's a little bit more of a mouse than an elephant, maybe in some cases, but it it is important in getting everything you can out of an athlete, and I think that's a really good point. For sure, absolutely. Uh, the last question I got for you, Rick, today, uh, talking about a little bit about some of the different methods of athlete optimization, movement optimization, function, uh, RPR, PRI, FRC methods. Could you touch yeah. a little bit on, and we already talked a little bit about PRI, but how those impact your program, uh, some of the commonalities and then differences, and how you're using that with your athletes? For sure, and it's and it's been interesting how it's evolved over the last couple of years as, as we've gained exposure to some of these different methodologies. But I think what's important is to understand these all have their time and place and are important resources in the toolboxes. Uh, but what's been helpful for us is being able to look at it from a software and hardware perspective. So more neurology-based stuff, PRI, you're trying to inhibit dominant muscle chains. Uh, the RPR, trying to, you know, different neurolymphatic reset points, being able to reset those um, have been tremendous, have been really helpful for us. But I think what has really uh, changed the game for us is being able to add more of a hardware component, which is the FRC, the functional range conditioning. So it's great. We can we obviously we can alter neurology. I spoke before. It's difficult to do, but being able to build up resilience of the articulations, the joints and the load that these tissues can handle is really important. So FRC, we're trying to obviously increase our passive range of motion, but what's really important is what percentage of that is, is active range of motion. So, uh, you know, yoga would be a great example. Great, you know, you can, you can increase your passive range of motion, but you're doing absolutely nothing for your active range of motion. And in some instances, could even be leaving your athletes at greater risk for potential problems. If they increase the discrepancy between their passive range of motion of a joint and their active range of motion. Well, now they may have 20 degrees that they have no control over. So it's about bulletproofing them and these end ranges of motion and gaining strength in these positions. And it's, it's been a game changer for us. I've been using a ton of baseball in season, just our guys, hips and backs and knees are holding up so much better uh, because we have this increase of range of motion, but being able to do it from both perspectives uh, I think has been really, really important and helpful. So PRI, we do a lot of broad strokes. So incoming freshmen, we're working breathing patterns a lot. Uh, can they create that zone apposition and be able to expand their back and breathe into their back? Um, a lot of adductor work. Adductors are really important for hole control and how well your femur is going to sit in the acetabulum. Um, and we still use that for a lot of specific, like SI joint issues, I think, uh, work really well with PRI stuff because you have left SIs tend to be more compressive type uh, issues, right SIs more distracted type issues. So certain PRI drills work really well for those specific cases. And then the RPR, 
Uh, it's funny when using our Nord board, we've we've seen very tangible improvements, uh, not necessarily in total force output, but in clearing up some asymmetries. Hmm. Uh, do some hamstring resets and then do some Nord board work. Now, Cal's uh, talked on that a little bit too, but we, we've seen it with our Nord board too. And we'll use it before workouts, uh, you know, like our sprinters do it before, you know, they get into sprint workouts. Uh, and the other day, like uh, baseball, we're doing heavy trap bars. Uh, sometimes instead of just doing the wake-ups, I'll have them partner up and do some manual hamstring glute resets. has been helpful for the guys. So what's been important for us is be able to use, I think, some of these neurology-based stuff for some specific type issues and some broad strokes. But then also doing that concurrently with building up resilience of these different articulations. So uh, because... Neurology is not perfect, and our understanding of the nervous system is far from what it's going to be years from now. And for us to think we have the greatest hold on it and we're achieving exactly this, it's you know a little far-reaching. And a lot of times you do resets, and they hold for a while, but not forever. And the PRI ones can be difficult uh, to really to work somebody from the ground to upright and reciprocal and neutral. So being able to balance these different perspectives and, and time and place for different ones has been helpful. But it's also important you got to build up resiliency to these different joints. Is the neurology is not going to be perfect. If you can build up resiliency and more active range of motion, and then also alter some neurology, I think you're 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 uh, giving yourself a much better chance and, and stacking the odds in your favor per se. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, it's really fascinating kind of how you uh, how you've integrated all those things together, and it does. It's almost a little bit of a an order of sorts. Like the PRI, that, like mentioned before, does seem to be something that highly effective, but in a large group can be difficult to use for everybody. RPR is a little easier; people can partner up or do it on themselves, and then. But FRC, uh, everyone could do that, right? Like, I mean, I actually that's the one I have the yeah. least experience with. Could you describe a little bit, maybe just like a one minute version of? what that is, yeah. what you're trying to get out of it, what some of your favorite uh, articulations are. Yeah, so, I mean, we'll do uh, usually pre-workout. We'll do uh, cars is a big part of the program, controlled articular rotation. So it's just getting end range rotation at all these different joints and being able to speak to the nervous system. So we'll do that. A lot of pre-lift, pre, um, pre-practice type stuff. And then we'll get into some more of the pals and rails, the progressive angular isometric loading and, and the regressive. And a lot of times we do that post-workout with our guys. Um, the, well, the thing I've loved most about it is it can be hard to get our athletes to want to stretch and cool down to do different things. But uh, they're usually tugging at me to do the FRC stuff just because they feel such a tangible difference in how they feel. So, um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't have to really nudge them or, or, or try and motivate them to do it, but that's something we'll, we'll use a lot, uh, and to work out. It's been helpful. I travel with baseball. We'll get on the bus for a long time. We'll make a stop and we'll do some cars, one hand on the bus and, and do some controlled rotations. And, uh, you know, after our pitchers pitch, we have a routine, they go through, uh, some pals and rails work to help them get recovered. For the next thing, I've noticed a huge difference. Our starting pitchers the next day when they come in to train, uh, they're so much re- more ready to jump into stuff than they had been in the past. So, um, again, with soccer, I'll get into it. We've done it some, but I'll get into it a lot more uh, this summer. But basic rotations and movement uh, before lifts. Uh, there's a morning routine. Some of the some of the guys and girls go through, um, and then usually post lift. A lot of times we're doing some some uh, pals and rails type work and trying to really increase that passive range of motion. We've done some more of the active stuff, but um, it's amazing how much time they have to spend, uh, particularly working hip rotation is, uh, you know, they, they get tied up by soccer players, baseball players, volleyball players that spend all their time in hip flexion, uh, lose a lot of their rotational capabilities. But that's another key component is gain rotation of the joint first and then a lot of things will fall into place in terms of flexion and extension. So, but it's been a game changer. And I think the most important thing, kids like doing it. Kids like doing it. We can, you know, that's something we can keep pushing and, and doing uh, more and having success with. Yeah. I love what you said there. Gain rotation first and then flex and ex- flexion and extension get easier. They fall into place. I think that's yeah. an awesome statement. I, I like too how you, you have all these assessment tools so you can see the direct outputs of neurological means like RPR 
and being mm-hmm. able to tag that. That's such a cool thing with the Nord board and doing those hamstring resets. And uh, all really good stuff. Uh, the FRC, what you had mentioned too, it reminds you a little bit. I've been using a lot of uh, J, the extreme isometric holds, the J straight out of the J straighter vein, and that's kind of almost a similar. Uh, it's, it has a lot of similarities to FRC. It's yeah. just FRC is a lot more rotational uh, in mm-hmm. nature, but I think they all that and weighted stretching it all kind of plays in the same world. I don't think it's highly effective. So that's really cool. I will definitely. You've inspired me to look more into the FRC to kind of pair with. Some of those other things I'm doing with the extreme ISO holds, I think that's all such a. It's a, so great for a large group too, because you everyone gets something out of it, and like you said, your kids like it. They're asking to do it, that, and that's that's where it's at. For sure, and that's ties into a lot of our strength trainings. We initiate with a lot of isometric means. It's the the easiest type of contraction to learn from a motor learning perspective. So it's it's easy transition, uh, and it's something we'll we'll start with our incoming freshmen this year and tie into a lot of our isometric holds we do early on so it kind of just just ties into a lot of other stuff we've already been doing real well well that's, that's awesome i love it well hey you're, do, you're doing great work rick man it was cool talking to you hearing from you your system and i, I learned a lot there's a lot of personal research i have to do at this point uh to to feel like I've, i'm catching up with all these uh these awesome pieces that uh are out there for improving our athletes so thank you for your time today really appreciate it no, I appreciate it, Joel. Humbled to be on your show and, and listen to it a lot. So thanks again. Thanks for tuning in today. appreciate you listening. And it's always great to get other strength coaches who are in the Olympic sports department on the line, seeing what they're doing and making my own process, learning from them to make my own process just a little bit better, learning things to tweak and new ideas to consider. So uh, it's really cool. Rick's setup is really cool. I know not all of us can probably afford every little piece, but the principles ring true regardless of your budget. Uh, Please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. You heard Rick mention Gymware, the 1080 Sprint, uh, great training, uh, not only training tools, but also fantastic assessment tools to see if what you are doing is making an impact. And uh, Rick is getting tremendous use out of them. So anyways, uh, also, if you enjoy the show, please don't hesitate to leave it a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.